Good morning, church family. Uh, this morning's text is Acts 19, and it's a big chunk, okay, verses 21 through 41, so turn there if you like. Uh, if you don't want to, then um, it'll still be up here, but I'd rather you actually flip in your Bible. So uh, even if you just have to scroll there, it's good to be able to have that in your hand as well as up on the screen. Um, most of you are probably aware we don't normally go through such a large chunk of Scripture uh, that's not typically conducive to expository preaching, but... Uh, but other than the first couple of verses that serve as an introduction, this morning's passage is actually a pretty detailed story, okay? So instead of breaking it up, I, I wanted to tackle the whole narrative. And so that said, while the churches are finding the seven bingo pictures that are hidden in this, uh, this slide that's about to pop up here, um, I, I'm going to explain how we're going to go through the text. One of those is not really, really that hidden, you might notice. Um, this is how we're going to go through the text today. Um, you can probably see your bulletin insert has three main parts. So in a sense, this is kind of a three-point sermon, but the overall theme is social commentary through the lens of Scripture. Okay, And we're going to look at what happens in this passage. And as we do that, first we're going to see uh, how the Apostle Paul handled himself in the events that Luke recorded and kind of have an eye to how he behaved for, you know, for the, the sake of application for our own faith, our own lives uh, and then when we get through the passage, we're going to back up and we're going to revisit the middle of the text uh, to discuss how people can be misled when engaging in groupthink, which could probably more accurately be called group stupidity or group idiocy, because that's typically how it ends up being. And then for our final point, we're going to come back almost to the beginning of the text to talk about idolatry, what it is, how people justify it and underlying reasons that it's being pushed on society. And if, if all this sounds complicated, don't be discouraged. It's going to be easier to follow once we actually get into the text. Uh, I just I wanted everyone to get a feel for what's to come because there's a lot here, and we're going to go pretty quickly today. Uh, so let's take a moment to pray, and then we'll begin. Father God, I just want to lift up each person here. I thank you, Father, for this congregation. I thank you, Lord, for those who are uh, who are able to, to be here today, and also for those who are traveling, for those who are sick. I know there's people watching online. Um, Father, a, a lot of folks are sick right now. We pray for them. We ask for healing for them. Um, I specifically want to, uh, to just lift up Tisha and Dave um, and just ask God that you bless them as they are uh, watching from afar, God. But we know, that, um, we know that their hearts, Lord, they're with us in spirit, and that's awesome. I just pray, Father, for each person uh, that receives your word today through this message, and I ask that it, it will be seeds that take root and bear fruit. And I know that you can do that through the power of your Holy Spirit. So that's what we're asking for. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so for context here, Paul is still in Ephesus, where he's been uh, hanging out for about three years at this point. God's been doing a whole lot of miracles through him. You remember we discussed that uh, a week or so ago. And the church in Ephesus has seen some tremendous growth, Okay. So, picking up here in verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, um, back then, remember that, that Claudius had kicked all the Jews out of Rome. So for a while, Claudius had died, and so Paul at this point was probably going, hey, I can finally go to Rome. Um, but at the same time, if you're a geography person, I know some of you folks really like the details, 
Uh, I'm not one of those, but I know some of you are, so I tried to kind of just give you a, a mental picture. Paul's on the coast of what we now think of kind of as, as, as Turkey, which is north and west of Israel. Um, and Macedonia is further northwest, but it's all the way across the Mediterranean Sea. And so that's where he was planning to go. That's where he sent his friends ahead of him. Okay, And then Achaia was once you went up to Macedonia, you go down into Greece. Okay, And, uh, and that's down south of there in Greece. And then Jerusalem is back across the sea and then down south and east. So this is a major trip that Paul's planning here. He's talking about crossing a sea twice, at least. Okay, uh, There's an interesting phrase in this passage that we're going to look at. It says that Paul resolved in the Spirit. Now in the Greek, there's a definite article before the word Spirit, meaning that it's not likely referring to Paul's Spirit within himself. It's referring to the Spirit of God that lived in Paul. Okay, So the Holy Spirit of God was leading Paul to decide what to do next. And I think we can pick up from Paul's example that whenever we make future plans, we should resolve in the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? I'm not saying that, that we should promise God that we'll do this or that specific thing so much as resolve that we will listen to the Holy Spirit and try to discern where He leads and then follow Follow the Holy Spirit's leading. You know, for Paul, at least in today's passage, it was about geography, but based on Scripture, it definitely seems like he, he was consistently open to the Holy Spirit. You know, in fact, he, he would go wherever he was called to go, and sometimes he wouldn't go or he was told not to. And we need to be the same way. We need to be the same, uh, follow the same leading as Paul. In fact, th this isn't really optional if we're following Christ, you know, Galatians 5 talks about the difference between being led by the Spirit and following after the flesh. It's the difference, listen to me, it's the difference between spiritual life and spiritual death. Following the Spirit and following the flesh. One leads to life, the other leads to death. Romans 8 is very clear about this. So I want to encourage you today, if you've never committed to Christ, that you will try to follow where the Spirit leads, don't waste another minute. Decide that now. I literally mean now. Say it in your heart, Holy Spirit, I will follow where you lead. This, this is a needs-to-happen kind of thing, friends. So I'm going to ask you to do that and then kind of put it on the back burner in your mind because it's going to come back here. So let's read on. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Luke does a lot of those weird double negative type statements. But he's saying there was a big deal about the way. Remember, the way was uh, the name that the Jews had given. Actually, I think Paul may have given it to them. But the Jews would refer to uh, Christians as followers of the way. Uh, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little, there's that phrase again, business to the craftsmen. Those he gathered together uh, with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Okay, now we're, we're definitely coming back around to this paragraph later, but for now, I just want to note a couple of things. First, Paul was absolutely right. <laughs> Okay, gods, put that in quotes, gods made with hands 
They're not gods. You know, what are they? Idols, thank you. In Isaiah, God talks about how idols have eyes but can't see and have ears but they can't hear and they're incapable of doing anything. And then he adds that those who make them will become like them. I mean, how silly is it to worship something that you have to carry around in order to get it from place to place, right? It's silliness. We'll come back to that too. For now, uh, I want us to note that Paul used the persuasive method to spread the word of God. He trusted that the Bible, uh, excuse me, that the gospel really does have the power, okay, to convert people from dwelling in darkness to living in the light. And we know this to be the case because Paul also wrote this in Romans 1.16. It's one of my favorite passages. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's what? The power of God for what? The salvation of those who believe. That's, that's a magnificent statement. So the gospel has this kind of power, and Paul understood that. Okay? Throughout the world, some of, some of the absolutely worst periods in history have been when, when people tried to convert others to their religion by force. That is not conversion. That is coercion. Big difference. Okay? And it's gone on for literally millennia. You know, in the Middle Ages, uh, even so-called Christianity tried to do this. And listen, today, Hinduism, it's not as chill as you think. Over to India, there are crowds that will beat you up for being a Christian because they want you to be a Hindu. Islam does the same thing in many parts of the world. Secular humanism is the same way. Any communist nation will show you this. You cannot change a person's faith by threatening their life. You can modify their behavior and possibly change their profession of faith, but a person's mind and heart, that falls under God's territory. And so Christians aren't to whip people to the cross, we're to lead them there. Does that make sense? Okay. Scripture is clear that God wants us to persuade people, not persecute them. In Colossians 4, Paul says to walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of time. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. And then the apostle Peter told the church, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But then he goes on, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't be incredibly bold with truth. But we should try to be winsome as best we can. You know, part of the reason that so many churches, I'm going to put that in quotes too, churches are winning so many false converts to Christianity is that they are watering down the gospel of Christ to make it palatable. Some preachers talk about worldly success instead of faithfulness. Many are ignoring the consequences of sinning against a holy God. 
You know, even some churches that preach the gospel are, are frequently, they'll soften the language to make things sound a little less dire. But the fact is, people, we're not just imperfect. We are wretched. Do you understand that? It's true that we're broken, but we're not just broken. We're irreparably crushed without Christ. We're desperate. We're depraved. We are inherently so fallen, so irreparably sinful that God sent His Son into the world to save us from the penalty of our own wickedness. Jesus died on the cross in our place so that the wrath of God, we talked about that this morning in Sunday school, would be poured out on Him instead of on us. And His resurrection is the ultimate proof that everything that He said and did was true. It was on the level. It was legit. <laughs> it was real. So perhaps like Paul, we can trust the truth of God to be persuasive on its own. It's just a thought. We're going to keep moving, though. Demetrius is still talking here. He says, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and she may be even deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. He sounds like a drama queen as I read this. When they heard this, they were enraged. And we're crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, which is a big, it wasn't like a movie theater. This is a big old amphitheater that held like 20,000 people. They rushed into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. They, these are Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. That can't be good, right? That can't be good. I mean, what do you think their plans were for these two? Certainly it wasn't, you know, bacon a cake, right? So, but when, when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Okay, now one more thing to say about Paul here is that he was obviously both courageous and caring. It was gutsy to want to go in there and do something. And of course he was, he was concerned for his friends, you know, maybe he was hoping to take some of the pressure off of them, or, or as one of the commentaries I was reading mentioned, if most of the town was crammed into the theater, then what better chance to preach the gospel, right? To a big crowd of people. But either way, we see the character of Paul here. He was very much focused on the well-being of others. He was willing to put himself in danger for their sake, even for the sake of those ready to attack him, because he wanted to preach the truth to them so that they might be saved. But providentially, God used Paul's friends to keep him out, probably saved his life, okay? Um, let's keep reading. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. Now, this Alexander, we don't know much about this guy. He was probably not a Christian, okay? He was probably pushed forward by the other Jews to speak on behalf of of the other Jews in Ephesus so they could distance themselves, right, from Christianity because they're like, we're not part of this crowd, right? This says, and Alexander motioning with his hand, you know, he, he, was, he was wanting to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized he was a Jew, these guys are pretty bigoted here, for two hours, <laughs> roughly, 
they all cried aloud in one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! For two hours. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, finally, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone which fell from the sky? Now, for context, Artemis was known also as Diana. She was the, the, uh, the false goddess of fertility. And her temple was so big, it's actually one of the, the seven ancient wonders of the world. Uh, it was massive. I, I think I remember, I, I may be getting the numbers a little off here, but the, the Acropolis, you know, in Athens, would fit inside it 19 times. The temple of Artemis was enormous, and it was likely presided over by a huge idol in, in the, the likeness of this false goddess, right? And on top of this, there's apparently a meteorite in the temple. Because Now, it could have been that this is just an urban legend because apparently a lot of the, the ancient religions say that we have something that fell from the sky. But, uh, but apparently they had this meteorite that was also in the temple along with this idol. Anyway, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Now, I, I find this an interesting statement. Even when he was helping turn so many people away from the lie of idolatry to the truth of Christ, Paul still couldn't be held in contempt for blasphemy against this false goddess. Now, I'm not positive. My theory is that maybe he focused more on preaching the truth of Christ than on debunking the lies that the Ephesians believed. Now, it's one thing to expose the fruitless deeds of darkness. We're told to do that in Scripture, okay? And we should do that, but it's another thing to dwell on them. And that's important when preaching a sermon like this one. I had to be, this was kind of speaking to me as I was writing this. I was thinking about that. Because, again, there's some social commentary in here, and it's going to be a little harsh. <laughs> so I've got to be careful. I don't want to drown out the truth of Christ with how terrible the world is right now. Okay, Because as terrible as things can get, Christ is better. He is always better. No matter what we talk about today, I want you to remember, the focus isn't supposed to be on the satanic lies of the world. It's to draw our attention to the goodness of God, to the glory of Jesus Christ. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, uh, you know, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. I wonder how long it took him to get their attention. You know, cooler heads prevailed. That's good. But isn't it odd that Luke would give so much detail here. I was thinking about, like, why, why would he do that? And it, maybe it's to show, maybe, it's just a theory, that even in a pagan society, it was apparent to the authority in the society that these people were behaving lawlessly. They were acting more like animals than people. In fact, it's likely that, that this is the incident that Paul's referring to in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says he fought with beasts in Ephesus. 
It's translated wild beasts in some of our translations. This is because they had given into what we call a mob mentality. And one of the most obvious signs of a mob mentality is disregard for proper channels. As the city clerk pointed out, there were courts for dealing with disputes. If Demetrius and the other craftsmen wanted to sue, they had that right. But when people get into a mob mentality, they are choosing to take matters into their own hands. Most of the time, this is a terrible idea. Most of the time. There's a reason God created authority hierarchies in society. And according to Romans 13, it's to do good and to punish evil. Now, of course, in rogue governments, that's not always what happens. But that's another message for another time. There are legal ways to settle disputes. And however, as we've seen very recently in our own nation, mobs are quick to form, right? Both in public and on the internet. We've seen that too, haven't we? Internet mob justice. People trying to cancel people. This happens for a lot of reasons. Some of these reasons are more valid than others. We've seen it happen when, when people feel disenfranchised, when a, when a government agent or agency does evil instead of good. We've also seen it happen when people feel like they're owed something by the rest of society or when they simply just don't get their way. And often mobs form because there are always angry people that are willing to serve as pawns for those who take advantage of public sentiment for their own means. We're going to explore that a little bit later. Uh, for now, let's go back to verse 29. It says, when, the, when they, that's the tradesmen, heard uh, Demetrius' speech, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with What? Confusion, and they rushed together in the theater, dragging with them all these other guys. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him out. They wouldn't let him go in there, okay, because they figured he was probably going to get hurt. Because a mob mentality promotes rage and at least potential violence. Rage is a bad thing in pretty much any circumstance, okay, because it is the definition of rage essentially is uncontrolled anger. Anger is not always sinful, but when anger is divorced from self-control, it becomes a tool in the hand of Satan. We know from James, it says that the, the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. Anyway, um, we've seen this happen a lot, I guess, in the last few years. You know, we've seen riots happen. Um, this resulted in billions of dollars of damage. We see there's lots of injuries. We had several deaths. I want everybody to stop. Stand up real quick. Just stand up. Shake it out. Too many people drifting off this morning. Shake it out. Stretch. Yeah, you folks that had your eyes closed, you're feeling it, aren't you? You're like, oh, he's calling me out. <laughs> Come on, roll them, roll them, let's go. Ah, do a little shh, 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 okay? All right, all right, sit back down, let's get this done. Okay, come on. Don't be falling asleep on me. Don't do it. Don't do it. 
All right, reading on. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. Now, Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense for the crowd. I just realized I blanked that out on the slide because I wasn't supposed to read that part. Uh, when we read this, this is, is reflective of a typical mob. It's full of confusion and ignorance and chaos. Mobs are not known for clear thinking. Okay? And if you're a part of a movement that is unclear as to its purpose, has no valid direction or solutions in mind, and has no coherent reason for its actions, you might be in a mob. Okay? And be careful. I want you to hear this because mob mentalities don't just exist in politics or in sports, they're also prevalent in individual families, sometimes even in congregations. You know, often the reason for feuds, for strifes and rivalries in families and in, in, in churches, they're unspecified. Sometimes they're even forgotten, but that resentment, that pettiness continues. So just be alert to that. Anyway, so Alexander tried to quiet the crowd, but when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This, this sentence is a gold mine of stupidity. I mean, look at it. Look at their behavior. This, this man, this Alexander, was not on Paul's side, but he was at least trying to calm this wild crowd. But they show the opposite of wisdom. They show the rejection of reason. They're not willing to listen to him. Why? Because he wasn't one of them. He was a Jew. Jews worshipped Yahweh, not Artemis. They don't buy idols, right? So they don't have a say. That's the wrong attitude, but that's how a mob thinks. Oh, you don't have a uterus? Oh, well, you don't get to decide whether a baby should live or die. Hmm. See that connection there? Anyway, even if Alexander had some good things to say, they refused to listen. But it's not enough for a mob to simply not listen. They don't even want to acknowledge any other perspective, or that there are any other perspectives. They immediately drowned him out. And that's normal because mobs prefer shouting down dissenters rather than letting them be heard. And at the risk of being Captain Obvious, I want to tell you, this is exactly what's happening today in our society. In case you didn't pick up on that. Okay? Currently, there is a vast, woke mob of people in the West today who are wallowing in ignorance, confusion, and chaos. And they are shouting down thousands of years of human history and experience and culture and biology and morality because reason doesn't fit in their foolish, godless idea of making our own reality. It's almost as though they believe that shouting loud enough, long enough, makes something true, which is another mark of a mob. Mindless repetition. In this story, the, the chance of the crowd for two hours. That's a great example of mindless repetition. Once again, Artemis 
isn't real, let alone great. Shouting over and over that Artemis is great doesn't make it so any more than changing your pronouns is going to change your biology. But they know that shouting something loud enough and long enough can cause it to stick. And they think maybe this will cause others to inevitably take up their cry and thus take up their cause. Mobs tend to have a herd mentality, meaning that they, they rely on people's natural instinct to play it safe and follow the crowd. One of the most telling lines in the story is that most of them didn't even know why they had come together. And yet they were together and they were shouting together. So friends, if we think that the idiocy that we are living in right now is unique to America today, it's not. It's not. Even 2,000 years ago, one small group with a selfish agenda was capable of manipulating the larger mass of people into doing something ridiculous. Now, now let's, let's talk about the, the particular group in this case for a bit, okay? Who started all this mess? Remember? Demetrius and his crew of fellow idol makers, of tradesmen and silver, and, and, and that would, would make these false gods. I want us to take another look at, at verse 27. We'll see what reasons he gave for trying to protect idolatry. And then we're going to go back a little behind that, and we'll read between the lines, okay? So Demetrius said, there's danger. Not only in this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess, great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Pretty grandiose. What it boils down to is this. Bringing their trade into disrepute is a fancy way of saying, Paul's making us look bad. Right? Think about it. I mean, frankly, Paul was just speaking truth. But when people's lies are built on a lie, telling the truth will shine a light on their wickedness, and that will make them look bad. Here's a good example. There's a common phrase nowadays used by some people to describe a pre-born human being before he or she is large enough to be identified as a human being. You've probably heard it. The phrase is clump of cells. You know, even the secular scientific community knows better than this. I read a recent poll, more than 90% of biologists state that life begins at conception. The vast majority of them are not believers but they believe that life begins at conception. The fact is, abortion is the killing of a pre-born human being. And the Bible consistently tells us that God hates the shedding of innocent blood. Those who champion abortion don't like to be reminded of these scientific and moral facts. And so they make up phrases like clump of cells in order to change the perception of what they stand for. But Christians should stand firm in the fight against abortion and against other evils in society because when we tell the truth, it doesn't make something look bad. It reveals it for the evil that it is. Let 
Next, Demetrius mentions that the temple of Artemis might lose its prominence. This, this is another common excuse that people give when they're trying to protect idolatry, and by that I mean anything that they're putting ahead of God. Okay? The claim is that any truth which might expose the idolatry as false is messing up our institutions. You know, institutions are, are things that we, we think of as fundamental to our society, but often the things that are truly foundational they get supplanted. They get replaced by terrible substitutes. For instance, before it was, it was blessedly overturned by God's grace and the Supreme Court, the Roe versus Wade decision has been around for less than half a century. And yet for hundreds of reasons, excuse me, hundreds of years before that, the right for an unborn child to live was considered more important than the right for someone to kill their unborn child. You see how that, less than 50 years, it, it takes the place of something else. But anyway, in the context of our passage, the temple of Artemis had been around for several centuries, at least four centuries. And to their mind, it was an institution, right? And so claim, think about this, because in this country, almost nothing exists, no buildings, no landmarks, almost nothing exists that was here 400 years ago. This temple had been here for more than four centuries. It would have been an institution claiming that it might be at risk. That would, that would raise the, the patriotic notions of the Ephesian people, right? And then perhaps most profoundly, the claim that Artemis might be deposed from her magnificence, that's really kind of funny. I mean, if you think about it, you know, the actual Greek word for deposed means to be pulled down. Huh. What a ridiculous statement no deity can be deposed by a human being. But the fact is, Artemis, she's just a statue. And we've seen statues are easy enough to pull down, unfortunately, in some cases. She's just a statue. She's not a real god. She can be pulled down as easily as any other statue. What he's saying here, really, is we might lose our idol... You know, forgive me for using the example of abortion again, but it just fits so well here. You know, most folks in America were in absolute, maybe not most, but many folks in America were in absolute panic over the prospect of the Dobbs decision being overturned. And abortion laws taken out of the federal government's hands, oh no. The so-called right to an abortion has become an idol for many, many people. And that's not the only political position that's been idolized. There are many others. People are afraid of losing things that they consider important above all else. And this is used to mobilize folks to a cause. And we have to be wary of this, okay? We've got to beware on, on two fronts. First, we must be careful, friends, family. We must be careful not to allow anything to sit on God's throne in our hearts because that's what idolatry is. Don't let anyone take God's throne in your heart. This is certainly not just a danger in politics, but it's probably even more common in materialism and in, in sexual sin and, and in entertainment and self-satisfaction and other deeply entrenched sins. We must allow our hearts to reflect reality. God cannot be deposed. And so we must not allow anything to occupy His place on the throne of our hearts. Does that make sense? We should also be aware that people are willing to sacrifice an awful lot for the sake of the idols. 
And we must not be fooled by their sincerity or by their passion because people can be sincerely and passionately wrong. To avoid getting caught up in idolatry, friends, immerse yourself in truth, which is the word of God. Immerse yourself in it. Learn the word. Stay connected to the Lord and stay connected to his people. Learn to recognize what things can separate people from God and don't fall into that trap, okay? All right, we're almost done. Uh, this last bit, though, is really telling. We've heard the excuses, right, for protecting uh, idolatry. Now let's see what the real underlying issues are, okay? How did Demetrius begin his speech? Men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And then he goes on to say, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God's made with hands are not God's. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? Because they dressed it up, right? But even though they, they tried to kind of make it look differently, there are a couple of real reasons here in this thing is that the tradesmen were upset with Paul's evangelizing. And the first one is simply loss of money. Loss of money. Greed. The upkeep of the temple and, and the idols of Artemis were big business. In Ephesus. And so these dudes were feeling the, the pinch in their wallets, right? Because the truth of God was leading people out of these lies that they were promoting with their vocations. And not only that, but the financial hit was accompanied by a loss of influence. By that you can read power. I want you to think about this, friend. This is why lobbying exists, Okay? People don't want to stop doing the sinful things that earn their living, especially if their foolish hearts are darkened. And they don't really believe what they're doing is a sin in that case. And it's, you know, the good news of Christ is a grave danger for sin, isn't it? Isn't the gospel an enemy of sin? You can say yes. Yeah, absolutely, right? Okay, and, and so the industry that I keep mentioning, abortion, is a billion, multi-billion dollar industry. But you know what's even more lucrative? Human and sex trafficking. The illicit drug trade. Do you know how many million, billions of dollars worth of fentanyl are flooding into our country? You know, there's other industries that aren't necessarily immoral in themselves, but they open the door for greater sin, and those are also hugely profitable. I think of casinos. I think of the alcohol beverage industry. Uh, you know, the lotto, Hollywood. You know, guys, there's big business in these things. And if more people come to Christ and, and we start obeying Christ and we start removing these idols that are enthroned in our hearts, we're going to dump our addictions, right? We're going to repent of our sins and walk in faithfulness. And then what are they going to do? Go broke. Christ is a threat to the world. And as such, we are a threat without ever having to throw a punch. I love how Warren Wigsby put it. He said, Paul did not arouse the opposition of the silversmiths by picketing the temple of Diana or staging anti-idolatry rallies. All he did was teach the truth daily and send out his converts to witness to the lost people of the city. And he says, as more and more people got converted, fewer and fewer customers were available. How about that? Now, friends, there's nothing wrong with trying to change the laws to better reflect God's kingdom. We ought to be doing that. 
But while we live in a society that is increasingly dark and pagan and heathen and wicked, we should be shining the light of Christ because the fewer, the fewer people that are in that lost culture and the more that are reflecting Jesus, the more light there is to light up those shadows. If we want to keep from being caught up in this mob mentality of this fallen world and resist the idolatry that's rampant in our culture, let's be like Paul. You know, instead of going with the flow, the way culture is going, let's be resolved to follow the Holy Spirit where he leads. And instead of simply picking fights, let's remember that souls are at stake and be persuasive in our evangelism. Instead of refusing to engage with society, let's be courageous and let's show concern for others, valuing their eternity over our temporary discomfort. I think this is what Christ would have us do. We've covered a lot of ground today, uh, but I hope the Holy Spirit caused something to stick. We need to reject the way of this world and have the mind of Christ so that we will be effective, but that starts with faith in Jesus Christ. As the Word says, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. You cannot be good enough for God, friends. You cannot be. You cannot earn your salvation, but what you can do is submit to Christ. Put your faith in Him. Turn your life over to Him. Follow what He tells you to do. His command is acknowledge Him before men. Be baptized. The Word says be immersed into the forgiveness of sins. He puts His Spirit in us. And then we are to live lives that are reflective of what He's called us to do. And if you have not done any of these steps, I challenge you today, take that opportunity. The Word of God is clear. If you've already done these things, if you've already been a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, but you're like, you know what? This is making a lot of sense. I, wanna, I, wanna, I don't want to be a part of a mob. I want to be a part of a church. This church is here for you. We would love to have you. Join us. We're part of the, the, the worldwide body of Christ. We believe that He has called us to live the way that... The Word tells us to live. We want to walk alongside you and have you walk alongside us. We're going to, um, we're going to do a song. And uh, Dave, why don't you come up? You can be Mark. Um, and I'll be Everett. And uh, we're going to do a song. And we ask that uh, if you feel that you're being led by the Holy Spirit to do any of these things, please do it. Please do it.